we're going to move on to a brief study of Hinduism. In your study guides, there's an article with some information on Hinduism that begins on page 11, and we're going to work through the worksheet together that starts on page 15. And let me just preface our look at Hinduism by saying that Hinduism is a very old and a very diverse religion. Uh, it's very difficult to say, well, all Hindus believe this or all Hindus do that, but that's kind of true of other beliefs as well. Uh, it, we can't really say all Muslims are fatalistic. Many of them are, but not all of them are. Uh, and there are Sunnis and Shiites and Sufis uh, that divide them up. And so uh, Hinduism is uh, a, a very uh, old and very diverse uh, belief system. And uh, so when I'm, I'm struggling to understand it myself at a very basic level, uh, but also just trying to hit some of the high points uh, so we can get an idea of where our Hindu friends are coming from uh, when they identify themselves as Hindus. So uh, we, will, uh, we will do that this morning. Okay, well, let's start with uh, number one on the worksheet on Hinduism on page 15. Um, Hinduism has about 850 million followers, and that makes Hinduism the third largest religion in the world, behind Christianity and behind Islam. Hinduism also is the oldest living organized religion, and it began as early as about 2500 BC. Uh, began in uh, India, and uh, that is still where there are significant numbers of Hindus, but there are also a significant number of Hindus in Bangladesh, uh, in Nepal, it's actually the state religion of Nepal, uh, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan, and there are about 1.5 million Hindus in the United States. As Hinduism got started in India, um, it began as a polytheistic and a very ritualistic religion that had very simple rituals. But over time, it became more complicated. And uh, so it required the development of a priestly class. And then during that time, uh, some writings known as the Vedas were put together, and that gave the priests the instructions that they needed to help lead these rituals. And then that led to them being sort of like mediators between the gods and human beings. And um, so that, uh, you know, that form of Hinduism <coughs> um, really just sort of evolved over time. <coughs> and around 600 BC, um, the people in India revolted against that. Uh, they really didn't like that system, and so Hinduism uh, sort of branched off and resulted in uh, more of a focus on internal med meditation 
rather than on external uh, rituals. So number one on our study guides, with an estimated 850 million followers, Hinduism is the third largest religion in the world behind Christianity and Islam. It's the world's oldest living organized religion, beginning as early as 2500 BC. Now, number two, um, <clears throat> between 800 BC and 300 BC, BC uh, the Upanishads were written, uh, also known as the Vedanta or the end of the Vedas. And it's roughly the equivalent of our New Testament. And the Upanishads really taught that behind the many gods, and there are as many as 330 million gods in Hinduism, there is one ultimate reality known as Brahman, and that's B-R-A-H-M-A-N. So number two on the study guide, or the worksheet, the Upanishads teaches that behind the many gods, 330 million of them, stands one reality known as Brahman, an impersonal force. Later Hinduism proposed a personified Brahman known as Ishvara. Okay. And so when we talk about this um, personalized or personified Brahman known as Vishara, uh, according to Hindu tradition, Ishvara became known to humanity through three manifestations of Brahman. And we see that in number three on our worksheet. The three manifestations of Brahman are Brahma, the creator, and that's actually, if you've heard of Brahma bulls, uh, that's who, who it's named after, Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. Sure. Uh, there's Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. Okay, so there's the idea that there's this impersonal reality, ultimate reality is Brahman, uh, and then uh, there is, uh, in Hinduism, uh, the, the idea that this Brahman uh, personified through three, um, three primary gods. So you have um, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. <clears throat> okay. um, Hinduism also is sort of divided along lines of whether the physical universe is real or an illusion. Uh, there are those who are called non-dualists, and they believe as non-dualists that Brahman alone, this ultimate reality that is everything, is real, and the world, the physical world, is an illusion. Uh, but then there are those who are considered dualists who believe, no, you have this, um, you have Brahman who's reality, uh, but we also have a physical realm that's real. So Hindus don't necessarily agree on that. Some believe that the physical world we're living in is really an illusion and only Brahman is real and the goal is to get 
away from the illusion to reality, and others believe that uh, Brahman and the physical world um, are both expressions of reality. So that's what's known as non-dualists and dualists. Now, number four, Hinduism has inspired three other religions, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. We're going to look at Buddhism uh, a little bit later today, but Jainism uh, basically developed in the 6th century AD uh, as a, a reform movement within Hinduism. It's very legalistic, uh, extreme legalistic, where a person attains salvation only through rigid self-denial. So that's what Jainism is. As far as Sikhism, uh, Sikhism began as an attempt to harmonize Islam and Hinduism, um, but it really sort of developed as its own separate religion itself. And uh, so anyway, those are three other major religions that have branched off of Hinduism. Okay, now while Hinduism is diverse, number five on page 15, uh, most Hindus generally hold to a number of common beliefs. So let's spend a little time looking at what these common beliefs are. Uh, first of all, A, Brahman is ultimate reality. Ultimate reality. We would say that God, the triune God, is ultimate reality. And that uh, what he has revealed and what he has created is real. But they would say, no, there's sort of this, this impersonal force that, um, that is everything and everything is a part of is Brahman. So ultimate reality is Brahman. B, there's unity between Brahman and Atman, and that's A-T-M-A-N. And Atman is really your true self. So if you see Brahman as ultimate reality, uh, kind of this belief that all is God and God is all and Brahman is all reality, then you and I as individual souls or Atmans are sort of an extension of Brahman. And uh, one way that one of the sources I read tried to explain it is like this. It said, just as the air inside an open jar is identical to the air surrounding the jar, so our essence is identical to that of the essence of Brahman. So if you think about us as an individual, let's say we're, a, let's say we're the air inside a jar, okay? Uh, well, there's really no difference between us, the air inside the jar, and Brahman or ultimate reality, which is all the air outside the jar. So in other words, you and I are extensions of that ultimate reality, and that's why uh, we can say, uh, if we're trying to summarize Hinduism is that God is all, Brahman is all, and all is Brahman, okay? C, karma, K-A-R-M-A, is the moral equivalent of the natural law of cause and effect. Karma is very important in Hinduism. 
um, how I live my life um, collects karma. Uh, the things I do that are good, of course, is good karma. Things I do are bad are bad karma. And those not only have cause and effect in this life, but they carry forward into my next life. That's because in Hinduism, the Atman, or the soul, our individual identity, lives on forever and ever. And um, I'm going to come back in a reincarnation um, after my physical death. And whether I come back uh, as a human or another life form depends on how I live my life here. And uh, if, uh, if uh, you see somebody who is a poor uh, beggar, well, uh, looking at it through the lens of Hinduism, um, that person must not have been a very good person in a previous life. And the karma that they carried over is that they're going to struggle their whole life just to survive. However, if that poor beggar lives a good life, does good deeds, and so on, that person may come back as a bank president in their next life. Uh, but if a person who's a bank president uh, commits fraud and swindles and is just mean and unkind and nasty, that person may come back as a beggar, or that person may even come back as a non-human life form. So karma is very important. It's not only how the cause and effect of our lives today, but it carries forward into future lives. Now, not everything about karma is unbiblical. The Bible does talk about sowing and reaping and causes and effects. Things that we do, decisions we make, have an effect on us here on earth. And how we live our lives has an effect on our rewards when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But to carry it to the extreme that our Hindu friends carry it really takes it way outside the bounds of what scripture describes as cause and effect. But karma is extremely important. Um, we talked about man's problem uh, in our previous session and how Christianity says man's problem is sin. Uh, Islam says man's problem is pride and ignorance. Um, well, how would Hindus answer that question? They would say man's problem is that we are ignorant of our divine nature. We are that air inside the jar that doesn't realize that we're of the same nature as all of the air outside the jar. And so what I need to do is come to a point of uh, enlightenment where I, where I escape the jar and become part of the air that's outside the jar. So man's problem is we don't realize our own divinity. We don't realize that we're really part of God or Brahman or ultimate reality. And so we've forgotten that we're an extension of Brahman and so we attach ourselves to the desires of our separate selves or our egos and thereby to the consequences of our actions or karma. So because we don't realize we're divine, because we don't realize we are an extension of Brahman, we attach ourselves 
to things in this illusory world, which doesn't really exist, it's an illusion, and because of that, we carry karma and it goes on into future lives. Which leads us to the next point, which is D. Samsara is the doctrine of reincarnation. And this is a seemingly endless cycle of life, death, and rebirth. We reap in this lifetime the consequences of the deeds of previous lifetimes. And a person's karma determines the kind of body he or she will receive in the next life, whether human, animal, or insect. And so that is uh, man's problem, remember, is our failure to understand our own divinity. And because of that, we attach ourselves to the things of this illusory world. And because we do that, we're locked in this endless cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Thousands of times, millions of times, coming back over and over and over again. So how does this thing ever end, or can it ever end? Well, E, moksha, is liberation from the cycle of life, death, and reincarnation. And this liberation is attained by realizing that the concept of self is an illusion and that only the oneness with Brahman is real. So we've identified our problem. Our problem is we don't realize our divinity, and uh, the solution to that is going to be um, uh, moksha, or freeing ourselves, getting out of this cycle of life, death, and rebirth, escaping the jar and becoming part of the air around the jar, realizing that our soul is really an illusion. We have a soul, but it's, it's illusory, and we want to mold back in or meld back in uh, to the divine oneness that's known as Brahman. Okay, number six. When some people look at Hinduism, uh, they may identify it in different ways. Uh, some identify Hinduism as polytheistic or the belief in many gods. And certainly Hindus would readily admit that there are 330 million different gods in Hinduism. Uh, but again, those 330 million gods are sort of emanations out from Brahman or part of Brahman. So saying that you know, we worship 330 million gods, many Hindus would say, well, no, that's not really the case. Yet some identify them as polytheistic. Others view Hinduism as monotheistic because it recognizes Brahman as one supreme God. In other words, there really is only one ultimate reality, Brahman. Everything else is an extension of Brahman or an illusion that needs to be overcome. Others see Hinduism as Trinitarian because Brahman is visualized simultaneously as one God with three manifestations, Brahma, 
Vishnu and Shiva, S-I-V-A. So some people say, well, see, uh, Christianity, which is younger than Hinduism, really just borrowed its Trinitarian beliefs from Hinduism, because Hindus believe there's one God with three manifestations of God, uh, the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer, and Christianity has the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, totally different concepts of God. Uh, Christianity certainly didn't borrow uh, the Trinity from Hinduism. Uh, God has been around as a triune being uh, forever uh, and predates Hinduism by uh, eternity. All right, and then there are those in number six, part D, who see Hinduism as henotheistic, henotheistic, because Brahman is the one God among many to whom the greatest devotion is due. A religion that is henotheistic or henotheistic uh, acknowledges that there are a multitude of gods, but that one God is supreme above them. And that's kind of the way that uh, Mormons are. Um, I would not say that Mormons, Mormons would say they believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but in fact they believe there are millions of gods ruling over millions of universes, but they say Elohim, the God of this world, is the only God with whom we have to do. And so that would be a good example of a henotheistic religion. In other words, acknowledges there's all kinds of gods out there, but the only one I'm worried about is Elohim, the God of this world. So that's some different views about Hinduism, and I think it reflects the fact that Hinduism is very diverse and very complex. All right, if you turn the page to page 16, we're going to talk a little bit about the Hindu scriptures. Uh, the earliest of the Hindu scriptures are the Vedas, and that term Veda means knowledge. Um, and uh, each Veda is divided into four different parts. There are the mantras, which are the basic verses or hymns that are sung during rituals. The brahmanas, or the explanations of those verses or hymns. The aranyakas, which are reflections on their meanings, reflections on their meanings. And the upanishads, or mystical interpretations of the verses. And then besides those primary scriptures, there are secondary scriptures known as the Smriti, the Smriti. They're secondary scriptures that are known as remembered, remembered. And included in the Smriti uh, is the most popular of all Hindu writings, the Bhagavad Gita, whose main character is Krishna. Krishna is an interesting character and very beloved. And among the world's major religions, there are really only two individuals uh, who are ever professed to be God who came in human flesh. Of course, one of them we know, right? Jesus. 
but the other would be Krishna, uh, that Krishna is one of the manifestations, uh, that he came as a human being and uh, was a, a God of great joy and happiness, God of great love. And um, so Krishna is a dearly beloved character in Hindu writings and Hindu beliefs. Now let's go to number eight. Uh, Hindu worship has no single creed, no single creed. In other words, there is not a Baptist faith and message type document uh, for Hinduism. Uh, there's not a clear statement of faith because Hinduism is very diverse, nor can you say we have the Bible. Uh, they have a variety of writings and a variety of beliefs and practices. So again, it's just very diverse and oftentimes very uh, individualized. Uh, Hindu worship is varied. Um, it, in, it features offerings, dance, and fasting. Uh, most Hindus worship an image of their chosen God, and they worship with chants or mantras and flowers and incense. Uh, worship tends to be individualistic rather than congregational. So let's go to number nine, because if, we, if the goal of Hinduism is um, to be free from this cycle of life, death, and rebirth, that's what's known as moksha. And there are three uh, paths to this Hindu version of salvation. First of all, there is dharma, which is the path of works, the path of works. A person has a set of specific social and religious obligations that must be fulfilled. Uh, for example, he must follow his caste occupation. He must marry within his caste. He must eat or not eat certain foods and produce and raise a son who can make a sacrifice to his ancestors as well as perform other duties. By fulfilling these responsibilities, the person on the path of works may obtain a better reincarnation in the next life, and perhaps after thousands of reincarnations, rather than millions, achieve liberation or moksha. So that's dharma, the path of works. Very rigorous path of works. Second is inana, or the path of knowledge. This is an even more difficult path, and it involves self-renunciation and meditation. Uh, this path is open only to men in the higher castes. It most often includes the practice of yoga uh, and an attempt to control one's consciousness through posture, breath control, and concentration. So you have the dharma, the path of works, inana, the path of knowledge, and then bhakti, the path of devotion. And bhakti is the path that most Hindus practice. So if I am a Hindu and I have chosen bhakti, um, I can choose any one of the 330 million gods, goddesses, or demigods in the Hindu pantheon and passionately worship that 
God. Again, most Hindus take this path, and in practice, almost all Hindus who follow this path worship either Vishnu or Shiva. The most popular god is Vishnu, who has appeared uh, as avatars in a form of a giant turtle, uh, as the Buddha, as Rama, and as Krishna. Remember we said Krishna is one of the most beloved uh, incarnations in Hindu thought. Shiva, the destroyer, is popular as well. Rituals performed by his devotees are similar to the worship of the Canaanites, who God commanded the Israelites to destroy. Let me just say a word about the caste system, which we just mentioned. Um, Around 500 BC, about 2,000 years after Hinduism was born, uh, there was a social hierarchy known as the caste system. Um, One Hindu hymn tells how four different castes of people came from the head, arms, thighs, and feet of Brahma, who is the creator god. And so those four castes are the Brahmins, who are the priests, the Kshatiras, who are the warriors and nobles, the Vaishyas, who are the merchants and artisans, and the Shudras, who are the slaves. Each caste was then divided into hundreds of subcastes. And so only the Brahmins, Kshatiyas, and Vaishyas were allowed to take full advantage of the Hindu religion, but the Shudras were forbidden from hearing the Vedas or using them to find salvation. So anyway, there's this caste, rigid caste system. But even lower in status were the untouchables. Uh, And until the 20th century, untouchables were considered outside of the caste system entirely, and they were treated as subhuman. They did the dirtiest work. They drank polluted water. They wore tattered clothing, and they were denied property, education, and dignity. Uh, When India became a nation in 1947, the government officially outlawed discrimination against the untouchables. Today, the caste system has lost much of its power in urban areas, but it remains virtually unchanged in rural parts of the country. So that is the caste system. Now, let me say a little bit about the mark on the forehead. Sometimes you'll see there's a red dot right here. Uh, That's what's known as the bindi, the B-I-N-D-I. And uh, it's called by a number of names, but the bindi is the most popular. It's a sign of um, piety, uh, and it represents what's called the third eye. And this eye is focused inward rather than the two eyes that are focused outward. Uh, And it's focused inward toward God or Brahma. So that's why you'll see a lot of times um, Hindus who have this mark on their forehead. And it's not always a red dot. Uh, It can be multiple colored. Uh, And today, uh, men don't typically wear them. Women do more than men. And oftentimes today, uh, they will match the color of their bindi with the color of their scarves and their other clothing. So they color coordinate that. But it represents the third eye 
focused inward on God. And remember, you are God. Your problem is you forgot that you're God. So it's focused inward to help you uh, achieve um, freedom from the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Uh, now let me say a word about the sacred cow. We all use that term uh, about certain things that are untouchable, that are a sacred cow. You don't want to go there. You don't want to mess with that. And that actually comes from uh, Hinduism's concept of the sacred cow. In Hinduism, the cow is considered sacred. She's a symbol of abundance, the sanctity of all life, and the earth that gives much while asking nothing in return. The cow is respected as a matriarchal figure for her gentle qualities and for providing milk and related products to people who consume a mostly vegetarian diet. And so the reverence for cows is found throughout Hinduism's major texts. Well, number 10, Hinduism reflects a Far Eastern worldview, a Far Eastern worldview and rejects most of historical Christianity's core beliefs. So when we talk about a worldview, a worldview is uh, really an all-encompassing way in which someone views reality and life. Um, if you had, for example, a, what's called a naturalistic worldview, like uh, atheists, for example, a naturalistic worldview says, Reality is the material world, and that's it. If I can experience it with my five senses, uh, even enhanced through telescopes or through microscopes, but it is the physical world and the physical world only. That's all that's real. That's a naturalistic worldview. So naturally, a naturalistic worldview, worldview excludes the possibility of any deity, any angel. It excludes the possibility that you have a soul that survives physical death. And when you breathe your last, that is the end of you. You are nothing more than a collection of certain chemicals and biological processes, and that's it. And so that's what's called a naturalistic worldview. So naturally, uh, when you talk to people who have a naturalistic worldview and you may relate to them a story uh, about um, uh, a deceased relative who's gone to be with the Lord, they'll go, what do you mean? That person's in the grave. And we can go to their gravesite. That's it. They didn't have, they're, they're not with anybody. They had nothing that's right. It's incomprehensible for them to think that there's a soul that survives physical death, or that there are angels or demons, or that there is a God or any gods whatsoever. So that's a naturalistic worldview. That really colors um, everything uh, that you think, and it colors the way that you live. There is uh, an animistic worldview. An animistic worldview says, uh, yes, there's a material world. We all know that. But there's also this unseen world. And this unseen world interacts with the physical world in which we live. 
And there are these different, there's one God, but there are these lesser gods that emanate from there, and they interact with the physical world. And so what we've got to make sure that we do is we've got to make sure that these gods who operate in the unseen world are happy, particularly happy with us. Because if they're happy with us, life is going to go good for us. If they're unhappy with us, then we experience problems. We get sick, uh, we have accidents, and we die. So uh, you see examples of that in, um, in voodoo, uh, in Wicca, uh, in Shintoism in Japan. The whole idea that there is this spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm really interacts with the physical realm. And so my goal is to keep the folks in the spiritual realm happy and placated so they don't cause me any trouble. In fact, if I can get them on my side, then I can use them to get at my enemies. So you can see the interaction there. Then there's a Far Eastern worldview, which is what Hindus and Buddhists embrace, and that is generally the idea that there is an ultimate reality, but it's impersonal. And that ultimate reality is out there, and you and I are part of that ultimate reality, but we just don't realize it. And so what we need to do is we need to break out of the cycle of life, death, and rebirth uh, in order to sort of lose the illusion of our own individualism and melt back into the God that we are. So God is all, and all is God. Uh, that's a very simplistic summary of a Far Eastern worldview. That's the worldview that Hindus and Buddhists hold to. And then, of course, there's a, a theistic worldview. And a theistic worldview believes that there is a God, and, but this God may be knowable or unknowable. Um, our Muslim friends, for example, have a theistic worldview. They're, they believe there's one God. Allah, but Allah, who is the transcendent creator of all things, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he knows everything, he's powerful over everything, but he is not relational. You and I cannot have a personal relationship with him, you and I cannot know him. We can know Allah's will, but we cannot know Allah himself. Well, that's a theistic worldview, but it's not a biblical a biblically consistent worldview. We, for example, would say there is one God. This one God is triune. This God is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. This God is relational. This God is knowable. Uh, and so we would argue differently. So as you can see, under those different worldviews, there are different flavors of those. Um, and when we look at uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, they subscribe really to that Far Eastern worldview, which uh, really rejects uh, the biblical notion of God and ultimate reality, uh, human beings and their purpose, and ultimately what man's problem is and what the solution to man's problem is. Well, let me stop there. I know Hinduism is just very, very complex. It's very difficult for me to wrap my head around it. Uh, as it may be for you as well. But let me see if you have any questions or comments before we break today. Yeah, the question is, if, if you don't have memory of previous lives, and I, 
I don't recall reading that they do. Uh, you know, how do you know where you are on the scale or how much farther you have to go? Yeah, or if you've even went. Uh, maybe this is your first, uh, first time through. Um, I think what they would, ha would say in response to that is you have to take stock of your current life. You have to live in the present, and you have to accept your state. If you are an untouchable, there's a reason you're an untouchable, so get over it and deal with it and make sure you're the very best untouchable you can be so that in your next life you will not be an untouchable. Uh, it is also, there's also a fear factor there that whether I'm an untouchable or whether I am president of a large corporation um, or whether I'm uh, in high political power somewhere, if I don't, uh, if I don't use that for good, um, I may come back as an untouchable or I might even come back as a non-human life form. So there's, there's kind of hope that's laid out in front of you. If I work real hard and I do good, my next life's gonna be better than this life, but if I don't do so good, there's the fear that my next life's gonna be worse than this life. And so you just have to, you have to knuckle down and go through life after life after life after life until you finally achieve enlightenment and you're freed of the illusion of your individuality and you're the air that escapes that jar and you become part of the whole again. That is the, that is the goal. And uh, you know, from a Christian perspective, that just looks, that just looks so exhausting uh, to me, uh, so unattainable. What's that? How do you abandon insects? That is a very good point. How do you become, if, if you become non-human, how do you then become human again? And I don't know how Hinduism answers that question. I'll have to see if I can find something during the break about that. Yeah, very good question. So. Yeah, what is their, uh, their standard of good? Talk about lip. I don't believe so. I don't think they would object necessarily to those, except they, the ones about uh, uh, worshiping no one than the one true and living God and some things like that. But the idea of having a moral code or doing things that are good and right, a lot of those are written about in their written writings and when they look at their, the avatars like Krishna, who is a very kind and compassionate person, the Buddha, who is a very kind and compassionate person, that really the goodness is sort of, it, it, it's really relative um, more than it is absolute. And uh, that's because there is no, it's really hard to, to grasp an idea of absolute rights and wrongs, absolute true and false, because Hinduism with a Far Eastern view um, really is, is very varied in how it, how it sees reality and how it pursues truth. Always in flux, yeah. Yeah, the, the question is, it's, uh, it seems very complex. Do Hindus recognize that? And I, I think for the most part they do, which is one of the reasons I think so many Hebrews choose the, Hebrews, Hindus choose the path of bhakti where they, they're instead of, there's all these gods out there and there's this ultimate reality and, 
unless they choose, they choose one of the gods and they devote themselves uh, to, that, to that god. So they, they really personalize it in that way. It does not seem to matter which one, as long if you choose that path of devotion, the importance is how devoted am I uh, to that God? And of course, many of them choose, you know, Krishna or Rama or one of those, one of the avatars of, of God, one of the appearances of God. Right, it is extremely uh, diverse and it, uh, some have described Hinduism, not so much as a religion, as a way of life. Uh, again, it developed in very, very old times, um, had its own different sets of practices and beliefs, wasn't really held in place by any single uh, authoritative set of doctrines, and so it, it has kind of spilled over into a, a wide variety of, of, of views. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to, for me anyway, to wrap my head around Hinduism is because it's so diverse and it's so complex. But again, if you're going to choose the path of bhakti or devotion, you narrow that down and focus on one God that you're going to devote yourself fully to. Are some of these uh, divinities saying they'll murder someone? I don't know that that's true in Hinduism. Well, Islam has uh, what's called an honor killing, uh, and that is uh, if uh, not all Hindu, not all Muslims would subscribe to this, but some do. That if you have a family member, for example, who converts to Christianity, you have brought shame on Islam. You've also brought shame on your family, largely because they live. Many many Muslims live in an honor shame culture and in bringing shame on Islam and shame on the family, to kill that person is to restore honor. So, uh, and we've even had a couple of those in the United States reported in the news of honor killings among Muslim families. So that is, that is part of it. I wouldn't say that every Muslim subscribes to that, uh, but some do. Certainly know that in some parts of the world, for example, Hindus and Muslims are kind of at war with each other. Sometimes Buddhists and Hindus don't get along, and sometimes there's violence that breaks out. I mean, Catholics and Protestants in Ireland killing each other and things like that. So uh, that does happen, but I don't know that that's specifically prescribed by the religion so much as it is, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And you'll find those in places in uh, Asia and the Middle East and even parts of Africa where the culture is not a um, uh, guilt and innocence culture like we live in in the Western world, but an honor-shame culture where um, you say somebody may steal. Uh, and if they steal from you um, and they get away with it, it's not a big deal, uh, but if they get caught, they have brought shame, you know, on their family, or they brought shame on their organization, and so that that oftentimes is where you get the honor killings from. More often than not, are gonna 
are going to match better and honor shame culture than they are a guilt or innocence culture. Um, and um, so that's why we'd probably see that in uh, Islam and then I didn't realize in Hinduism as well. Uh, how strong is Christianity in India? There is a um, there is a strong presence in parts of India. I understand some parts of India are much more uh, open um, and pluralistic to allow other beliefs. But and you may know this better than I do. But there are parts of India that are quite hostile to Christianity, and uh, so I think it just depends what part of the country uh, we're talking about. Um, and uh, there are parts of uh, India that are uh, Buddhist as well. Uh, there are parts of India that are uh, Muslim as well. And, uh, and again, in general, Hinduism is very diverse and very open and accepting. You kind of choose off the menu what you're going to do, but there, there are places where uh, Hinduism is much more rigid in terms of what they're going to accept from, from non-Hindus. Oh, yeah, the Americanized yoga classes. And I know there's a, there's a bit of a debate and sometimes a heated debate within evangelical circles about people who take yoga classes. And I haven't really investigated that. I certainly don't think if an exercise regimen of some kind is going to hurt. But if meditation is brought into it uh, or Eastern beliefs are imposed on it, then I would start to be a little concerned about that. But if you're just going to a class to stretch to music or exercise, uh, I'm not sure there's much harm in it. Sometimes maybe we fight over uh, things that we don't need to fight over. But it's always good to be cautionary um, that if in the process of doing something you're being indoctrinated with false belief system, then it's probably best not to do that. Well, it's good that you showed discernment with that, um, because yeah, and that, it's it's always good to ask questions, I guess, because I know people say, "Well, I'm going to my yoga class," and they're they're going to a stretching class done to music, okay, but or I'm going to my yoga class and we're going to meditate, and we're going to clear our minds and we're going to do things like that. That that's where it takes discernment because there is a there is a difference there. And it's it's a subtle shift, but a dangerous one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 